invite you to take a Bible, if you will, and let's turn again to the book of 1 Corinthians, where for the past uh, couple of months we've been studying through. We're at the end of chapter 9. Um, it's on page 957 from these Bibles in the pews. Before I read verses 24 to 27, I want to uh, tell you something that happened some years ago, and then I'll, I'll read the passage. Uh, Donald Carson, Dr. Donald Carson, also known as D.A. Carson, uh, has been a highly respected Bible teacher and author for many, many years. Uh, I would guess now he's in his, his 70s, but he still writes books and is contributing to ministry around the world. But when he was a college student, he grew up in Canada, he went to McGill University, and his freshman year, when he went there, he was already a committed Christian, so he and his roommate, who was also a Christian, decided that they wanted to begin an evangelistic Bible study in their dorm room. So they invited uh, three students that were not believers in Christ if they would like to be a part of this evangelistic Bible study, and all three agreed and the uh, D.A. Carson and his roommate were kind of fearful because they didn't know what they'd gotten themselves into. And they thought, well, maybe only one or two of the three will show up and it will be okay. Well, all three decided to show up. And not only that, within a few weeks, those three had multiplied to 16. Uh, all non-Christians that were coming weekly to this evangelistic Bible study that D.A. Carson and his roommate were leading. Well, they knew they were in over their heads, and there was an older Christian student at their, on their campus named Dave. And Dave was a graduate student, and he was, had a reputation for not only being able to talk to people clearly about the Christian faith, but also to help establish new believers in the basic beliefs of the Christian faith. So every once in a while, they would send students to talk to Dave, but there were two particular students that were coming to the Bible study, and they'd been there for many weeks, and so D.A. decided to take them to meet this graduate student named Dave. And they, even though Dave was very busy, he invited them to come in to his, uh, to his uh, dorm room and to uh, have coffee and uh, made time for them. And then he looked, and uh, he looked at the first guy and said, uh, why are you here? And here's what he said uh, to that answer, uh, to that question. He said, well, you know, I've been going to this Bible study, and I realize I should probably learn a bit more about Christianity. I'd also like to learn something about Buddhism, Islam, and other world religions. I'm sure I should broaden my perspectives, and this, during this period while I'm in college seems like a good time to explore religion a little. If you can help me with some of it, I'd be grateful. Well, Dave stared at him for a few seconds and then said, I'm sorry, I don't have time for you. And D.A., who was sitting there listening, he said his jaw dropped open, and the student said, I beg your pardon? And Dave replied, look, I'm sorry. I, I really don't mean to be rude, but I only have so much time. And I'm a graduate student, and I have a heavy academic load, and if you have a casual interest in Christianity, I'm sure there are many people around here that you could spend a lot of time and energy you could talk to them, and they could show you the ropes. In fact, I can introduce you to some of them, and I will recommend some books for you to read. But when you are really interested in Christ, then come back and see me again. But under the present circumstances, I don't have the time. Well, 
Dave then turned to the other student who just heard all of that, the other student whom D.A. had brought to him, and he said, why did you come to see me? Well, after hearing his response to the first student, this guy may have been a little bit timid, but he just jumped right in and he said, and I'm reading from what I heard from the book where I read it, I come from what you people would call a liberal home. We don't believe the way you do, but it's a good home, it's a happy family. My parents loved their children, they disciplined us, they set a good example, and they encouraged us to be courteous, honorable, and hardworking. And for the life of me, I can't see that you people who think of yourselves as Christians are any better. Apart from a whole lot of abstract theology, what have you got that I haven't? D.A. said, Dave stared at this student for a few seconds, and then he said, watch me. The student named Rick said, I I'm sorry, I don't understand. And Dave said, watch me. You come if you'd like to, and you live here with me. You'd be my roommate for a month if you'd like. You'd be my guest. Watch what I do. Watch when I get up. Watch what I do when I'm alone. Watch how I work. Watch how I use my time. Watch how I talk with people. Watch what my values are, and come with me wherever I go. And at the end of a month, you tell me if you see any difference. Well, Rick, the student, did not take Dave up on his offer exactly, but he did begin to spend time with him and get to know him much better. And in, over the process of time, Rick became a Christian. And he married a Christian woman there from school. The two of them went on to med school, became doctors, and they practiced medicine and lived out their faith in Canada and overseas. And D.A. Carson said, Rick's words, watch me, at the time, sounded extremely arrogant. But then he said he also remembered the words of the Apostle Paul, which come right a little bit past where we're going to read in a moment, when Paul said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. The truth is that much of the Christian faith is, is caught as much as it is taught, nothing new there, but it's picked up by constant association with mature Christians. And so God has created you and me so that we, we learn by example. I mean, think about it. Why do children who grow up in France speak French? If you're raised in Texas, if you're raised in Texas, why do you sound like a person raised in Texas? But if you're raised in Georgia, why do you speak perfect English? I'm not sure, but <laughs> we grow up imitating those around us. And this works for good or, or for bad, but God has wired us so that we, we mimic model behavior. And when we are exposed to someone who has a positive driving cause in his or her life, we find that attractive in most cases, even magnetic. And the Apostle Paul was such a man. And his cause was to win people to Christ. That's the way he described it. Yeah, when we, if you were here two weeks ago when we looked at the first part of chapter 9, he said, to the Jews I became like a Jew. That's verse 19. To win the Jews. Verse 22, to the weak I became weak. To win the weak. And then he says, I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. In chapter 11, verse 1, he says what I just read to you a moment ago, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Okay, what was his example? We know he said that he 
He didn't exercise certain rights that he had. He, to the Jews, he became as a Jew. If he was around circumcised people that knew the law, he'd spoken in those languages. If he was around Gentiles who knew nothing about that, he would, would intermingle with them. But he did all of that without changing his message, which was the gospel. Now we come to the end of the chapter, and he talks about his inward drive and his self-discipline to be effective in this ministry. Verses 24 and following say, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together for a moment. Father, we ask your blessing now on this, your word. We ask you to use it for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier in this chapter, his example had been that, that in winning others to Christ, he had certain rights that he chose to give up to give up in verses 3 and 6 and verse 4 says he had the right to food and drink in other words when he went into a city like the city of Corinth and he evangelized and saw people come to faith in Christ and a church established he had the right for them to support him to free him up financially so that he did not need to do his vocational job so that he could minister full time and so he had the right, you might say, that they provide for him, food and drink. He said, do we, in verse 5, not have a right to be married and to bring along a wife like some of the other apostles do, and that the church would support her as well? Verse 6, that he's not have a right to be released from manual labor, his secular employment of making tents. Uh, but he renounced all those rights. And in verse 15, he said those le were legitimate rights he had as, a, an, as an apostle, a man who had the office of apostle. But he renounced them. And he did so because he said he wanted to remove any hindrance from the gospel. Here was a man who had many enemies. There were plenty of people that would like to have seen Paul dead. And they were constantly looking to find faults with him. Uh, I, I remember hearing Billy Graham interviewed one uh, on a television show, and, he, and, and the interviewer said, you've never really made much money. He said, no, I haven't. He said, I've been offered a million dollars just to endorse like something. And he said, but I've chosen not to do that. And, and he said, I just don't want that to be an issue. I think he, was, he could have said, in some people's eyes, if, if they knew I made that kind of money, they would think, well, he's only doing it for the money. And so he renounced that right. Uh, Paul did the same thing. And, and so he, he knew he had the freedom to do these things, but, but he said, I renounce those. Why? Verse 22 tells us, the second part. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Now, he didn't mean he had the power to save another soul. He meant that he was God's servant to bring the gospel. So his objective was to win people to Christ. What does it mean to win a person to Christ? Well, he, he would go in and preach the gospel. Perhaps that's not clear to you. Let me, as a person growing, that I grew up in church, I, I knew bits and pieces about the Christian faith. Let me try to 
connect the dots. Let me try just to put it together very briefly. We call it the bad news, good news. The Bible tells us that God created our ancient foreparents, Adam and Eve, that they were two people. We don't know what color they were. We don't know what language they spoke, but they were humans. And they, they had not only the senses we have, but they had a spiritual sense. They literally walked and talked with God in this garden of paradise that God had created. God gave them one prohibition, and they were not to eat of a certain tree. Well, he said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. There was a strong, not only was a prohibition, it was a prohibition with a threat of death. Well, the day came that they did disobey God. They did eat of that tree, and, but they didn't die physically, not for a long, long time. But that day, that moment they died spiritually, that connection they had had with God now was severed. And so immediately they experienced things they had not experienced before. There was guilt. There was shame. They hid from God, whereas before they had never done that. They had never been afraid from him. They had never been ashamed with God. There's now tension between the two of them. There's shame between them. Their relationship has been affected. And God comes to them, and in a pronouncement, a curse he makes on the serpent and about the future of, of work and childbirth and so forth, he gives a, a seed is planted about a redeemer, a redeemer who would come later to make all things right. And so we have the, the 39 books of the Old Testament that, that show and tell and picture this redeemer who will come that's called the Messiah, one who is sent. We have over... 300 prophecies in the Old Testament telling about this one who would come. And then the Old Testament comes to an end and there's 400 years of silence when God doesn't speak. And then we come to the New Testament era. And the beginning of that is an angel appearing to, to Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. And then we have the birth of Christ and, and we have the life of Christ where he obeys God in all respects. He said, I always do those things that are pleasing to my Father. Whereas you and I sin, whereas we miss God's mark in our thought, words, and our actions, Christ said he never sinned. Even his enemies had to pay false witnesses to come up with, to trump up charges against him that led to his crucifixion. He said, I came down from heaven. He said that before Abraham existed, I am, and he used the name that God had given Moses to call him. His enemies, the religious leaders, knew that he was claiming to be God when he said that, and so they said, you're committing blasphemy, and they wanted to see him killed at that point. Then he allows himself to be put upon a Roman cross, and while he's on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we understand that to mean it's as though here's a book, and God has all my sins written in that book. And at that moment on the cross, Jesus took those sins. They were imputed to Jesus by the Father. And God the Father and God the Spirit turned their backs literally on God the Son. And he experienced spiritual death, separation from God himself. Moments later, he experienced physical death. His enemies thought, well, that's the end of that. But three days later, he rose from the grave physically, bodily. He appeared to his not only to the immediate disciples, but over a period of 40 days, he appeared at one time a crowd bigger than this, 500 people at one time. We think all in all, maybe as many as 1,000 people saw the resurrected Christ. The last commandment he gave to his disciples was they were to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Now, how do we receive that? 
most of us, if we have any church background, you could have repeated almost word for word everything I I just said. Well, the Bible says we're to believe. We're to have faith and repentance. We're to have faith in that. In other words, I don't look to myself to be able to make myself right with God through my own efforts, through my own goodness, through my own trying, my own efforts. But I realize I can't do that. Only Christ. And when he died on the cross, he became my substitute. So I'm trusting in that. That's what the Lord's Supper says when we come to it in in a few minutes. That I am trusting and depending on what Christ did, his perfect record, and his substitutionary death. When you come to believe that, you are adopted as a son or daughter into God's family. You've experienced a new birth and your life begins to be transformed. That is what Paul meant when he said, I seek to win as many as possible. He didn't mean manipulate. He didn't mean do a slick sales job. He meant to see them come to understand and believe the gospel and be transformed by it. In fact, the wording he uses there at the end of the previous paragraph is that we may share in the blessings of the gospel together. So that he, he wants them to be part of this forever family. I want you to be part of this forever family if you don't know Christ. So how does he carry this out? This description in verses 24 to 27 is a description of how he exercises self-control to be an effective witness, an effective minister, in his case, missionary for Christ. The Bible uses the analogy of a race, like we read from Hebrews 12 earlier, to describe the Christian life. But this paragraph is describing his calling as a minister as a race. His calling as a missionary, as a witness. So what is it about it? What's distinct about how he approaches that? He compares it to a race. Verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Run, so run that you may obtain it. It's no surprise to us. We, we didn't grow up, some of us, with participation awards. I mean, it was if you, if you won, you won. If you, did, if you didn't you weren't first, second, or third, you, you weren't getting anything. Sometimes you got a white ribbon in swimming, you know, if you were fourth, but that, I grew up swimming, and uh, so believe it or not, I know that's a stretch for some of you. So anyway, somebody won and somebody lost. In Paul's day, you had the Isthmian Games that were every three years right near the city of Corinth. These were known all over the Roman Empire, and if a person won at that level, he lived, and it was he, it was just men, you lived with that fame for the rest of your life. Everyone knew who you were. So who's Paul competing with when he says run in such a way as to win? Is he competing with other Christians, with the, with the other apostles? Is he saying, hey, I'm going to run faster than Peter and, and, and all the others and Matthew? And No. He's saying run like the one who wins. You want to be that guy. That's the way you run. He wasn't speaking in terms of competition with other believers. He's saying, run and train like the person who wins the race. Now, a person does not become a winner at a high level of athletics without intense training. It was true then, it's true now. Now, believe it or not, I work out, if you call it that, you know, 30 minutes, this, a little bit of weights, you know, some stretching, just, and I only do it to stay healthy. Not so much physically, but emotionally. And we can talk later as to whether it's working. But 
Some of you are into, you're not into working out, you're into training. Now, two years ago, Barbara and I had the opportunity to stay in a, Barbara's my wife, <laughs> Barbara and I had, we stayed in this really, really nice hotel, probably nicest hotel we've ever stayed in, and it had a phenomenal, almost brand new fitness center. Fitness center. Rows of clean, new, stationary bikes and elliptical machines, and each one had its own flat screen. I mean, you could choose what you wanted to watch on that thing. And it was all clean, and there was no one else in there. This was on a Saturday night, you know. I mean, everybody else is out having fun, and the pastor and his wife are walking around the, you know, the fitness center. And so there's stacks of neatly folded towels, and she reminded there were, there were wet towels in a cooler with slices of cucumbers all around them. And then there was this big ice water jar, and it had limes that were sliced in there with the water. And we were, ooh, ah, oh, bowls of fresh fruit or granola bars or fitness bars. And you went in, and I said, let me go see what the men's locker room looks like. And it's like, and it's the travertine. And there's every toiletry item from all around the world that, that you could use and take with you in these amazing showers with 30 shower heads in each shower and and it was really more like a spa and so the people who go there they go there to work out on the other hand some of you don't go to a fitness center or spa you go to a box are there any box don't raise your any box pick are there any crossfit people in here that's what i'm talking about you don't know the terminology go to crossfit making TAO and you'll see the box. That's what it's called. And there's no, uh, I mean, these are people that have ropes doing this that are the size of the things out on the Golden Gate Bridge, you know, they're about that big and they, you go in and, and there's, no, uh, there's no cucumber towels there. There's no lime-infused water. And typically you say, well, I've never seen one of those. You know why? Because you don't want to drive to that part of town because most of them are in abandoned warehouses surrounded by abandoned warehouses, and they love every minute of it. And there's no selection of toiletries. And at the box, you go to train. You don't go to work out. You go to train. You're not there to catch up with all your friends on the, on the latest local news. And you're put in a data bank, and, and you're compared with other people your age all around the country, and then there's this pride that our box is going to beat every box in the country. You know, corporately, we're going to do that together. And so you, you, do, the, you do workouts, and you wear weighted vests, and, and you eat cinder blocks for after the workout, and you do curls with washing machines, and you squat with tractor tires on your back. I mean, that's the kind of thing they do there. I heard... A preacher uh, say that uh, he said there is one piece of equipment they give you. They do give you one thing, and that's chalk. And he said he asked the guy, chalk? Why chalk? He said so we can draw an outline of the dead bodies around that are here and everything. I told him not to lift the pickup truck. I mean, stick with the Prius. So spiritually, Paul was a box person. The way he trained for ministry and to be a witness, he wasn't. He wasn't socially working out. He was training. And so he goes on to say in verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. I mean, every year, don't we read or hear of athletes, high-level athletes at college or professional athletes 
who are kicked off of teams or suspended from games or fined and forfeit millions of dollars, all because of one thing, lack of self-control. They can't control their sex drive or they can't control what they drink or substance abuse or what, how they treat other people. And that's what Paul is saying, that athletes at that level need self-control in all things. You can't compartmentalize. An athlete can't say, well, hey, I'll train and I'll work out. I'll train. I've got to do away with that. I'll practice, but I'm not going to sleep. And I'm going to eat anything I want to. And you say, no, it doesn't work that way. You know, all these things fit together. So it's you've got self-control in all things. You can't compartmentalize some areas. As a Christian, I can't say, well, I'll, I'll be effective witness for Christ only in one setting, only in, in my neighborhood, but on my job, I'm going to do what's necessary to get the job done. And I don't care what rules I break. You can't compartmentalize like that. What was the prize? Well, in Corinth, it was this wreath. It was a, a garland-type thing, and as I mentioned, the names of the winners were known throughout the Roman Empire, but the prize, the wreath would eventually wither and it would die. We run for a prize which will never die. It will never be taken away. It will last forever. Paul's example, the last couple of verses there, verse 26 and 27, he said, I don't run aimlessly. It's not like I'm out running around in, in circles or with no purpose. I, I do not beat I do not box as one beating the air. I'm not shadow boxing. But literally in verse 27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. The literal reading there is I bruise myself under the eye. Bam, like that. Why did he say that? Because our main obstacle, not only in Christian growth, but also in ministering to others is typically ourselves. It's, it, we, we, either because I'm too lazy to, to engage this person or too shy to talk to this stranger or too preoccupied to even listen to my children and, and seek to pray with them and for them and to teach them or, or whatever it may be. I think Paul knew his main obstacle was not the religious leaders, of which there were many, was not life in the Roman Empire and the fact that many of the times he was imprisoned. That didn't even stop him. He knew his main obstacle was himself. And so he's talking about, I need self-control. Self-control even to minister to others and be effective. Lest, he says, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Whoa, what does that mean? Does that mean he loses his salvation? No, of course not. It meant lest it be shown to be fruitless, lest it be rendered ineffective. That's what he meant by that. What are some lessons we can learn from this? Especially, again, in ministry. First of all, self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So as we grow in Christ and we lack self-control, we can say, Lord, help me. Help me. My feelings are pulling me so much in this direction or against what I know you want me to do. Help, please, by your Spirit, give me the ability to control myself to do, to do that. I, I, I am so painfully shy. It, 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 it's just I, I, 
for me to walk up and talk to a stranger is I might as well climb Mount Everest. And a few of you can relate to that. When I walk into a room of strangers, I can hyperventilate. I know what it's like to hyperventilate and feel I've got to run out of here. I mean, and I've, I've been that way since I was young. There's just a shyness. And I realize shyness has a real self-centered side to it. And some people confuse it with humility. I don't think it has anything to do with humility. It's a preoccupation with self to the extent that I'm not thinking about the other person's needs. I'm not picking on the shy people. I'm just, I, I'm, whatever you are, I'm more, okay? So the self-control I need at times is to engage another person when I've got an opportunity. This summer, there have been a number of between um, thing, events here with First Presbyterian Day School and some funerals. I've had two men come up to me at the wellness center in between towels, you know, I mean, you know, or in between cucumbers and all that, and say, you're Chip, aren't you? I was at such and such at First Presbyterian Church. I'd never been in that building. And I view that as God taking the door and cracking it. And I've got to have the control to go through and say, well, tell me about yourself. What do you? And so I now, each time I see them, which has been about three or four times since that, I try and then kind of pick up where we left off and engage them in conversation. And I'm trying to get to know them and minister to them in some effect. One had a heart attack. One almost died from a heart attack. And I, I'm, I can kind of tell you his life story then. I'm just using that as an example in my life. There's no, we're not to duplicate the Apostle Paul. We're not all called to be gen, to missionaries to the Gentiles. We're not all called to be apostles, obviously. There were only so many of those. But, but where God has placed you to be a witness, first in the home, then to your, the neighbors, the people, the spheres of influence God has in your life, co-workers, others, wherever God's given you opportunity, where he has put you, how can I be most effective in this situation? Okay, second lesson, briefly, you are in the race. We don't all serve exactly as Paul did, but we have, all have unique callings. Second, you only get one race. This is it, folks. This is it. There's not going to be another one later. So what are you doing with this one? Now, how long will your race last? I don't know. Maybe a few more hours, maybe days, weeks, months, years, decades. Regardless, I do know this. Today, I am one day nearer the finish line than I was yesterday. That I know. Third lesson. As runners approach the finish line, they, fake, they focus more and more on it. You know, when you watch these 1,500-meter or 3,000-meter races, uh, track things, they'll, they'll start off at a, at a slower pace, and then they'll pick it up, and it's all... And then the concentration becomes, I mean, they don't look at one another or anything. I mean, it is totally, as they get toward the end, on the finish line. So for those of us who are naturally older now, for those of us as we naturally age, and I'm now in my sixth decade of life, it should increase our focus on Christ, not lose it. This is not a time, fellow older people, it's not a time to kick back. It's not a time to float or to drift. And then D.A. Carson asked this question, what rights have you given up for the sake of the gospel? How does the concern to win as many people as possible shape your life? And what can you do to improve in this area? Now, I would, if, you were, if we were talking in person, uh, one-to-one, I would say, how has God used you in the past? 
How can you maximize and capitalize on those type things? If you're a good counselor, a good listener, then who can you listen to? You know, but sometimes we dream that if I only had these gifts, I could do that. Well, no, who are you? How has God made you? Uh, what, what are the things in your life that he uses to build bridges? That's, that's what the direction you want to go in. I hope you're not hearing, try harder and God will love you. Well, let's go back to the bad news, good news. This has nothing to do with that. This is about uh, ministry effectiveness. And it doesn't happen just naturally. I think, I think we have, it, it, there's effort. Now we come to the Lord's table in just a moment to confess our lack of self-control, to confess the fact of when we're just consumed with ourselves and so forth. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this table that we are about to come to is preparation for the great wedding feast that will happen when we come to be with you for eternity. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.